When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Studying Media Critically, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm your host, Gummo Clare, and today I'm joined by Marianne Franklin, who's Professor of Global Media and Politics in the Department of Media, Communications and Cultural Studies at Goldsmiths University of London. We're discussing her book, Sampling Politics, Music and the Geocultural, which was published in 2021. Welcome to the show, Marianne. Hi, thanks for having me. So just to start off with, could you tell us a little bit about your path into academia and kind of what drew you to write this? My path into academia, well, have you got all night? (laughs) Um, A zigzag path in and around, up and down, but eventually I settled and I stayed. That's the short version. (laughs) (laughs) And so, because I know you've, you've written kind of quite broadly before, what kind of drew you specifically to this kind of subject matter? Well, I studied music and um, and then I left academe for the first time and then I came back and I entered international relations and politics. So music kind of sort of didn't seem like an academic pursuit. Uh, but I've always been interested in the links between politics and culture, however defined, and particularly the performing arts and sonic cultures, but never thought of it as an academic pursuit until 2005 where I put together a, an edited volume called Resounding International Relations on Music, Culture and Politics. And that book uh, pretty much set me on this path, though I did a couple of others in between. And I do a lot of work about internet, policy making, uh, stuff like that, because I've always been interested with the digital um, and its mediation and Oh, what should we call it? Um, Elucidation and enabling and all the other kinds of weird, wonderful things that these technologies have allowed us to do, but particularly the performing arts and music in particular. So it was just a matter of time before I I turned a corner again and came back to sort of where I started, uh, but in a different place. And uh, sampling politics is the outcome of a few years of that work alongside everything else. So this book is kind of a really ambitious attempt, I think, to explicitly kind of read geopolitics from music as music and tracing a number of kind of famous samples and examples of musical borrowing and their trajectories. 
through process of citation and back to the original versions themselves. Did your decision to kind of take this approach come from any frustrations with existing culturally formed analyses of music and politics? And then also, how did you go about selecting the samples that you, you deal with in the book? Well, yes, a lot of frustration um, because I think uh, we, we work in literary media. Our media, no matter how audio-visual it is, is still very much the written word. And much as I have a lot of respect for lyrics, who doesn't? Um, all meaning, particularly political or um, whatever you might define, was being um, distilled from lyrics only with an occasional wave of the hand at uh, the musicality, however defined again, because I define that, as you can imagine, quite broadly. And particularly as these ideas entered um, politics departments, partly through the Resounding International Relations volume, um, people were still fixated on lyrics only or... Uh, fan cultures, audiences, and that's all really important work. I'm not dissing it as such, but it's only part of the story. So that was the disciplinary frame in which I set myself uh, for this particular study, which began very back in resounding international relations, as I realised we were just doing literary analysis, basically, uh, when talking about music. So reducing music to the literary, which I think is problematic. And so there's a really, really wide range of um, kind of musics that you take on uh, across the chapters. And so one, you analyse one group of sounds using kind of raga theory derived from Indian classical music. And another one, you, you like follow the network of makams, which underpin a lot of Arabic and Levantine music. And then elsewhere, you know, we, we've got 20th century post-war European avant-garde and hip hop. And you, you use theoretical approaches derived from each music's own kind of emic tradition which was like quite a big undertaking. So could you tell us a little bit about the work involved in theorising these kind of sets of music? Well, I broke every rule that I try and um, help my students with by A, having five case studies instead of one, maximum two. Perhaps you can get away with three. And then I still whittled those down. And secondly, by being absolutely ridiculously ambitious. Um, but I was following the music, I was following the sample, and that took me on the places that I've hoped the reader has followed me into and out of through my own learning, my own relearning, and also the extraordinary conversations I've had with practitioners during the writing of the book and the research. And of course, since the conversations are still continuing, I mean, I've been corrected or nuanced or refined by uh, at least two other people for two specific chapters. And it's uh, so it's a it's, it's an open-ended book, even though it seems like everything's completed and um, finished as we, we see these artefacts. So it was ridiculously ambitious. A COVID kind of helped, maybe. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I I take your point. And uh, um, thank you for your summary. You, I couldn't do better than you've just done. And, yes, you did have to go into a lot of theory uh, music theory, uh, which in itself is still a disputed terrain, even in terms of Arabic music, music of the Arabic world, or even within uh, classical Indian raga, and also um, rap and hip hop. So I had to respect not just the musicalities, but the, the intersectional race, gender, class, religious or non-religious traditions from which uh, they emerged over a long periods of time as well. So I learned a heap. It was just amazing it was extraordinary it made my music training look pretty meager actually but i think something that's quite impressive is you managed to express a lot of this stuff which over such a big kind of you know sonic and geographic span in a way that's 
you can follow even if you haven't got kind of really strong musicological chops or whatever. So I, I did really enjoy the fact that it wasn't impenetrable. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. That was actually the secret objective number five, which I didn't actually write in too much because then you hoist yourself on your own petard. But thank you. <laughs> so like turning to the chapters one by one, you start in a really interesting place um, with John Cage's kind of infamous silent piece, 4 Minutes 33. Um, so what does this work kind of offer us for thinking about sampling and or as politics? And what have kind of subsequent critical commentaries or analysts perhaps got a bit wrong about the political potentials of acousmatics has played out in performances of 433? Oh, that's a really great question. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty much sort of peel things to the essence. Um, and to think about, you know, what is sampling, you know, taking from where and what. So I'm kind of um, appropriating Cage, uh, even though he's actually a very early sampler himself back in the 50s, late 40s, he was doing what we call sampling. Uh, even rap and hip hop uh, um, style kind of stuff. So I was trying to strip it down to its essence. And it, this chapter came from me performing 433 and discovering how difficult it is to actually bring off. Um, even though in music departments it gets a bit poo-pooed, but it is actually a very difficult piece to bring off. And I loved its kind of um, up-you attitude that still is as fresh as ever 60-odd, 70 years later from 52, what are we now, 70 years ago, actually. Um, so that was a place to start and to really start thinking about uh, what sound is or is not, and obviously to engage with sound theorists and the idea of what is music or not music, to get out of that kind of classical popular frame that has it be a you know twelve bar blues, and you know a succession of clearly organised non problematic um, chord progressions and that sort of thing. And I think John Cage belongs to a generation of men and women, not just in the states but also in Asia, Asia Pacific, and obviously in Europe, who really wanted to challenge those those presumptions about the quality of sound and who organises it in what way. Though they themselves have become establishment of obviously since. That's, that's my answer to the cage question. You had another one, I think, did you? Yeah, I mean, it was just kind of thinking about how some of the receptions of 433, both kind of contemporaneous with John Cage, but then subsequently maybe have overlooked some of the interesting political potentials or some of the questions raised by by Cage's work. Yeah, yeah, no, well, I think you're, you're right. It's double-edged because uh, certainly um, those scholars who've engaged with 433 from the point of view of its either cultural politics, obviously he's a product of Cold War America. Uh, his work, as was the case with many of his contemporaries, was deployed, uh, secretly funded by the CIA to supposedly project this idea of anything goes and this equals freedom equals democracy vis-a-vis this tightly controlled forms of art and culture in the Soviet Union. So that was obvious kind of politics in a way. But um, also because silence itself, however, you know, how we might want to think of it or experience it is both politically, uh, has, has a politically empowering motivation, but also an oppressive motivation. To silence someone is to, like it says, to stop them speaking or prevent them from uh, articulating or having a voice. But remaining silent is also, I think it's some amendment, isn't it, in the American Constitution. But remaining silent is also dangerous. In British history, people have lost their heads, as we know. 
by being silent, certainly during the religious wars and a few centuries ago. So silence itself is a quality, and uh, many a great poet and playwright has a wax lyrical about so-called silence. And I think Cage understood this. It was also a bit of a gimmick, but it's an incredibly effective one. And if you see it performed and you're in an audience when it's being performed by somebody else, the challenge is always there. A, can you sit still long enough? B, what are the feelings that you are noticed as you notice that, you know, two minutes is a very long time to sort of do nothing and that sort of thing. So the politics there are not straightforward. And I think that's why it's such a powerful um, way to start to challenge our assumptions of what is or is not political for a start and what is or is not music as organized sound. And there I think Cage was a very important player in those debates. It's got to start somewhere. The 52, halfway through the 20th century, it was kind of convenient as well. Also, one thing I really liked is how you kind of put it in dialogue with Christopher Small and because the idea that a performance of 433 brings the importance of relationships and participation so strongly to the foreground in the, exp- of, in the experience of musicking. And it's again, it was just a really interesting place to start, I suppose, with a theory like musicking, which now is, has become so kind of expansive and used so, so widely. I, I, I gave kind of it's a really interesting reframing for me anyway of that. Um, what I wanted to add was just how many times the idea of 433 has been in itself sampled. You know, and I, I cite some of the bands like Radiohead, Grand, Granddaddy, uh, even the avant-gardists like Stockhausen, of course, deliberately make uh, that reference. So it's an incredibly influential piece because silence or non-sound is also an crucial part of um, any sonic or musical composition as well. And he was just flipping the telescope, really, or flipping the uh, speaker scope. Um, I'm trying to use sonic references as well because the visual ones are so strong. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I think in that sense it was the most – it was a challenging chapter because he's an enormous literature about John Cage, including his own literature about himself and his work, uh, because he was also an author of some distinction. So, yes, it was um, a good place to start, and I think – Given what we've all been through with lockdown, I think 433 still remains quite powerful, uh, however you want to interpret it. But politically, it's it's complicated. I think actually that idea of dealing with all the kind of uh, meta-commentary that someone like John Cage provides, you know, that's also something you mentioned. Stockhausen does has does something similar, mm. and but which is notable by its absence with some of the kind of Global South performers who you cite, whose opportunities to provide meta-commentary on their own work are far more muted. So I wonder if we'll come back to that actually. And th- so then in the next chapter, you talk about Asian Dub Foundation and specifically their tunes Fortress Europe and Rebel Warrior. Could you tell us a bit about this group and the kind of complex post and decolonial politics of their music and the Asian underground scene that they came from? Well, first of all, I'd just like to acknowledge um, Onirota Dasa's um, input into this chapter and the book generally. Uh, Onirota is just doing some incredibly interesting thinking and creating of his own about, you know, frequencies, political frequencies, along with other colleagues. So he works, he has worked within Asian Dub Foundation, and now he's gone solo. Um, And of course, those two tracks are really, um, really established tracks from their very, very early output. So when I began the book many years ago, proper, um, Fortress Europe had gone a little bit out of fashion. It was came out in 2002. 
I did have my doubts. But of course, since we've had these uh, new issues around um, immigration and anti-immigration rhetoric and the use of Frontex uh, from the European Union point of view, um, border controls, um, there the lyrics do start to really um, become quite prescient. But it's also, it was a chance for me to really look at a group that has been out there right from the start saying we are political about the way we make music and we make music in such a way that that sounds our politics uh, and they've been on record ever since they began in this level and it isn't just because they're dub or asian dub or that's really important and there's been um really good stuff written about that in their heyday i really wanted to get into the formal qualities of those tracks particularly fortress europe and just figure out, as I hope I've shown in the chapter, just how they do actually musically, formally and sonically and in their production values, do something more than a track that talks about border guards and uh, xenophobia, which because the lyrics are obviously political. I mean, that's a no brainer. So from an analytical point of view, where do you go from there? Fortunately, music there provide lots and lots of material. So I had to do some old school musicological analysis there. And it was really interesting. I discovered quite a lot. You know, I wondered if you could try, I mean, it's going to be quite challenging, but I wonder if you could try and do a bit of explanation of some of the analysis and some of the kind of genealogies you kind of trace by following specifically the vocal hook from Fortress Europe. That's probably where I'm stretching things a little bit. I, I realised that I needed to look at some of the theories about musical borrowing. Um, because sampling is a form of borrowing. And that opening line, even though it's um, ascending, and the line I say it's so-called borrowing from is descending, the vocalist in question um, understands, just as um, Asian Dove Foundation understands uh, their Bollywood uh, references and their classical music references. So Sonia Mehta knows what she's doing in that vocal. And Oni Rutter also confirms um, how important the vocal is for conveying a sense of anguish and urgency. So I started to explore the movie that I claim and others have sensed um, that she's riffing off, whether she knew it or not. Strictly speaking, maybe I've got it completely wrong. But um, it was really, really interesting to get into this really old movie called Amra Pali and discover these, uh, this particular personage as an historical figure and all the very interesting highways and byways in terms of uh, gender, uh, nation, um, uh, popular movie music in the Indian tradition and the classical uh, raga that, of course, are embedded in Asian Dumb Foundation's music making because they also draw on their parents' Um, record and video collections, um, which they say themselves, but reconfirmed by Onirota. So uh, I felt that as a listener, if we wanted to get past the obvious politics of the lyrics, we need to understand the the codes by which a South Asian performer who's, you know, listened to classical and popular Indian music or South Indian, North Indian, how they actually just absorb these tropes and make them work in their own music and how unless we take the time as non um, non-experts or not socialised in these musical forms, how much we miss. So I'm hof- offering, I hope, some new dimensions to a listener because I think Fortress Europe is a very tightly organised track, really, really shows its dub reggae uh, references, but also really understands the sources from which it's pulling um, and troubling them as well and not putting up with any idea that there's a rigid classical ideal 
in Indian classical music because that's strict, as strict as Western classical theory is, uh, certainly the way you're taught. So that's how I did it. And I just sat down, listened to the song, listened to the track a lot, divided it up into bars, and then figured out when the changes came, when the vocals entered, you know, and discovered how even it was, even-handed. So it's it's allowing equal airtime, airplay structurally in the, in the track to the female vocal, the um, dove vocal that comes in, and their own layering techniques, which is, of course is a feature of sampling in digital terms. And so then in the following chapter, we kind of move in a very different direction sonically and to a number of different debates as well. And it's a kind of a fascinating discussion of the quite infamous Brian Eno and David Byrne album, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, and some of the music that it samples. So I wondered if you could start by explaining some of the kind of key controversies that have emerged and continue to dog this record. Well, basically, um, it, 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 it represents, particularly these days, as the debate heats up, uh, cultural appropriation at its worst. But also, in terms of um, aesthetically or musically, um, a very, very early pioneering form of analogue sampling in the studio at its best. Um, and so it's that tension once again. Um, they, the, you know, Eno and Byrne did get, you know, officially clearance, but the real, the real controversy goes back before um, Byrne and Eno sampled from a compilation record. The compilation record is a compilation of field recordings uh, that was part of a Horniman Museum, which is in the south of London, not far from Goldsmiths, a um, contribution to this huge World of Islam festival. Uh, which in itself is a book worthy. And as you may have noticed, this is the longest chapter and um, enormously complex and um, multi-level issues around ownership, control, access, consent, and gender, because the person whose voice and performance is constantly written out of all the outrage from journalists and other musicians about Eno and Byrne is Dunya Yunus herself. And that's scandalous because if we're going to be outraged about cultural appropriation of a vocal line, this wasn't the only vocal line that Eno and Byrne um, um, sampled from. They got into trouble with some of the American um, samples. Uh, it's because um, it's constantly, this is where my gender kind of politics came through for me. It's constantly men telling us about music, mansplaining their way through the music. And Eunice's voice and her performance was completely uh, silenced. So back to Cage. So um, here, uh, Johnny Farage uh, became an enormous um, wealth, uh, well of knowledge for me. And he and I are still discussing this particular track because to him, uh, Abu Zuluf, which is the title given to the sampled um, performance, you know, it's like Danny Boy is to many of us. You know, somebody starts singing Danny Boy in a pub, everybody goes, oh, you know, the same effect is how Abu Zuluf um, comes across to many audiences in the whole Levantine region. Uh, not just the makam, the scale it uses, but the actual specifics of it so and it's now identified with lebanon so there's so many it, it's so easy it's, it, you can't just point the finger at one particular quote-unquote culprit and for me the problem was i love my life in the bush of ghosts as an album i've got it on vinyl man and i mean what do you do when you learn something about a record and you realize that it's based on a form of pilfering that could have been done another way and there's no point saying it was the 70s we didn't know any better because the field recordings themselves are problematic. I've seen the original records. I've been to the 
uh, Scottish National Archives, where Jean Jenkins' um, um, personal archives are. And there's a whole story there about which recordings ended up in these six uh, vinyl, um, you know, box set. That in itself is problematic in terms of ethnomusicology. And that, that debate's been thrashed out somewhat in other areas. So, um, and then I realized I knew nothing about Makam based music. So it was very really complicated, that chapter. And um, I wanted to see how Eno and Byrne themselves used the sample musically without judgment and then judge them. <laughs> I mean, I'm not being, I'm sounding a bit facetious, but I mean, musically, they are doing something very, very interesting with all the tracks. But then I got more and more troubled as I got deeper into how they put each track together. And they also use um, a track from a commercial recording. And then, you know, we have lots of Eno and Byrne waxing on about this album after the fact. Lots and lots of them talking about this album, but they seem blissfully unaware of the, the, the provenance and, and the the sonic cultures of the tracks they use. And I find some of their pronouncements surprisingly specious, actually. But I haven't thrown out my copy of My Life in the Bush Ghosts. I do think it has its place in the history of um, studio sampling. And I know that they've been um, held to account on a number of levels. And I just wanted to reconstruct the history of the field recordings from which they took the World of Islam Festival itself, uh, and also this complete misappreciation of the track, um, the way it got represented as Islamic, as Muslim, when in fact it's a secular uh, vocal line sung by a Christian vocalist. Um, so there we have it. So the whole issue about cultural appropriation, how close it becomes to uh, racial stereotyping. And I think music journalists for me, became my bête noire in this chapter. But, and, and then I caught myself as well. We all just sort of find ourselves reiterating the same mistake, which when we get to the next chapter um, also came to, fore, came to the fore. So, yeah, it was um, a challenging chapter, but, um, yeah, and, and Johnny Farage, once again, I want to acknowledge his input. Um, and also I also want to acknowledge Dunya Yunis and her daughter, Rayana, who allowed me to ask them questions about something that's a very long time ago and has been the source of some distress, to the point that the original recording in the uh, Olsen archives in Denmark, where I did go as well to Copenhagen, has been closed because Eunice and her family are sick and tired of having Westerners coming along and listening to what was, in fact, a private recording. The the way that you unpick it all, for one thing, reveals exactly what a ethical minefield the whole thing is. And in such a way that, you know, cultural appropriation as a kind of uh, label for it doesn't even scratch the surface, I think, which is... Um, it's so interesting and it, as you say it's very complicated and i would urge listeners to to read it because we're not going to be able to kind of touch the sides of this chapter i don't think um but one thing i did want to ask specifically that i found fascinating thinking about the kind of macro politics of it all was you have a really fascinating section on on this vision of islam festival in which the track was first kind of i guess entered into circulation. And you talk about how this slightly homogenizing understanding of Islamic music and history um, plays a role here. And that's a, a reflection of specific kind of conjunctural forces and geopolitical forces in the late 1970s. So I, I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit. Yes, well, of course, actually, this is this, this is going to be my next book, I think, because I think um, in the archives, the, the, the you know, the Foreign Office, um, 
the British government was keeping their ears very close to the ground with this festival. So it in itself is a product of the 70s. You know, Iran before the revolution, Iran after the revolution, the oil crisis and all the rest. And it's the first moment, I think, where we have this so-called, as Huntington would try and tell us, so-called clash of civilizations. But the World of Islam Festival has come under a lot of criticism by um uh, Muslim scholars in particular, because it's a very particular branding. And music, so-called in Islam itself, has a complicated relationship. And in some schools of Islam, uh, music isn't recognized or permitted. And in others, like the Sufi tradition, of course, it's a very important aspect of worship and ritual. But the World of Islam Festival I discovered was a very, very important part of the story. It's also how British listeners through the BBC were introduced to music of the Arabic world, but being presented as music of the Islamic world, and they're not the same thing. Uh, and that's where Eno, I'm pretty sure, heard for the first time the recitation from the Quran that was on the original uh, pressing of My Life in the Bush of Ghosts and then was removed because it was objected to. And where he would, because Jean Jenkins herself was on BBC and I was very lucky to find some of the archives and hear her playing some uh, tracks. Um, As an ethnomusicologist, she certainly knew what she was talking about. But the you know, the the World of Islam Festival itself was a form of branding, a form of positioning about so-called Islam and culture. And uh, and we've all forgotten about it. Strangely enough, my mother remembered it, of all things. She thought, I remember that. So it went right through the Commonwealth. So it in itself is worthy of more um, study. That whole chapter, even though you do a really good job and you cover so much ground, you feel, I came away from it with so many more questions to see, you know, where's next? So yeah, that comes through very strongly. And then in the next chapter, we're, we're in a different place again, and we're, list, we're looking at Karlheinz Stockhausen's piece, Hymnen, I think it's pronounced, That's which right, is yes. a, a very lengthy piece of electroacoustic music from the 1960s, where he extracts from and manipulates hundreds of different national anthems. Could you tell us a bit more about the kind of work that Stockhausen and his team did to construct this piece? Well, he basically got a recording of the um, national anthems from UNESCO, and then he played with them. And because he had all the equipment he could possibly dream of, he had his own studio equipped by um, the South German uh, Radio Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, And he actually, you know, pioneered some of the equipment that we all use or people use now in digital form. Uh, and he was experimenting a lot with um, sonnet manipulation at the time, and this is before he went digital himself. So this is very analog, twiddling of dials, you know, pressing buttons on tape machines, if any listeners remember those. Just like Brian Eno and David Byrne did, they were sellotaping bits of tape together, and um, and he wanted to see what he could do technologically to these what he called very familiar, almost cliché, pieces of music but of course some of them aren't cliche some of them are part of the classical canon <laughs> have that have been taken on as national anthems and so um that too needed listening and considering on its own musical musical sonic terms but the minute i started to look at some of the anthems that he used and um some of the critiques about it being a eurocentric piece of cosmopolitan horseshit um, I would like to beg to differ with those listeners. Uh, I think Stockhausen is a very, very erudite, intelligent, super intelligent um, uh, scholar and artist. And this is an example of research-based composition. So he, 
he was playing with you know the cold war split he's the same generation as cage but younger um you know he was furious with the soviet union because they um denounced his music as um, you know decadent in similar ways the nazis had denounced art uh, he's a product of the first and second world war he's a product of the nazi terror in terms of what happened to his mother and so there's so much in here of a personal nature um which he doesn't hide but he also plays with the national anthems of not only what was then east germany and west germany but he also sneaks in the uh short-lived nazi national anthem which got him into a lot of trouble. So um, Hymnen itself is um, an experiment in electroacoustic um, sonic manipulation before the digital took over. But I think for me, as I've argued, it's an act of remembering. And um, that to me was the big discovery as I listened more closely to the music and was able to follow it on his score. And this is a, a point I must bring up. Most you know, traditional composers write a score and then it gets performed. In this case, he made the piece and afterwards he transcribed it into traditional classical scoring. So he sat down with a stopwatch and wrote down what he heard of a piece he'd made. So he flipped the order, but the score is a very, very important resource for spotting which national anthem comes in where, you know, two from Ethiopia, um, Afghanistan, strange enough, because it didn't have one when the Taliban were in power the first time. And so there's a lot uh, there on an archival nature. Sadly, I couldn't get down to uh, Curtin where um, the Stockhausen archives reside, but if I had, I probably would have never finished the book. <laughs> so, so, uh, because there's, it's, it's such a rich archive in itself. And um, yeah, it hasn't been appreciated in the UK, this piece. Um, some of the reviews, particularly shortly after 2001, 9-11, Stockhausen uh, made a quip and that got him into, into hot water. Um, and it's also like Fortress Europe. It's a piece that's come and gone with the times. And I think it's back just like Fortress Europe because we're living in a re, what's the word, a redux of some of the tensions that Stockhausen was trying to question actually through what he was doing. And also he was just playing. There's a lot of ludic uh, fun in Stockhausen's work, but it's a very powerful piece. If, I, I, if you've got a three hour train journey, um, um, it takes two and a half hours. Uh, highly recommended. And feel free to fall asleep because it'll wake you up at some point. Oh, yeah, it's less likely to, to be as soporific as, for example, a lot of the national anthems I know anyway. Oh, so, yes. And... Well, of course, you know, <laughs> that chapter I had to bring in, of course, Miles Davis and then Jimi Hendrix because we know when national anthems are played around with, quote unquote, the forces of cultural control get upset and musicians have been put in prison like visual artists for doing the wrong thing. So just as Hendrix got into trouble with his version of the American national anthem, um, I think Stockhausen's uh, chopping up and reversing and um, playing around with uh, quote-unquote sacred national anthems, including God Save the Queen, also was considered irreverent in some quarters. So. Uh, he was also troubling that kind of sanctity that is completely constructed and complete imaginary, but has a force of military and police and forces of order behind it. One interesting facet of that chapter, as you kind of touched on there as well, is the exchange. So it's not just about borrowing on Stockhausen's part, but you, you kind of discuss and interrogate ideas of exchange between Stockhausen and, and his wing of the avant-garde and 
more experimental, popular and jazz forms in the 60s and onwards. I, I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit. When we come to, you know, the crossover between so-called popular jazz and classical canons, this is why Miles Davis is a very important figure, um, because he was trained at the Juilliard School of Music. Conversely, Stockhausen was a jazz pianist when he was young. That's how he earned his living. And so these these false divisions, they're also part of the kind of marketing machine that has journalists talking about classical music on one side or pop music on the other side. Absolute nonsense. Um, and also the issue around race, the fact that um, African-American composers also include the classical canon. Um, and the admiration, of course, uh, that um, bands like the Beatles Miles Davis himself held for Stockhausen as well, including Bjork. She is a complete Stockhausen fangirl. Um, So all those crossovers are there. They're happening. And yet in our writing, in our reading, as interested listeners or scholars, we don't see the crossovers in the writing. So in that sense, um, I, I took liberties perhaps towards the end of that chapter to delve into Miles Davis, Frank Zappa, and... Jimi Hendrix, and also to remind us that the one anthem that Stockhausen doesn't sample from is the Black National Anthem, and I'd like to thank um, one of my students, Madison Williams, for pointing that out. Uh, The Black National Anthem doesn't actually feature in Stockhausen's repertoire of anthems, even though it's 100 years old, if not older. So um, lots to be thought about there. And it's also a piece that just keeps surprising you every time you hear it. I played it actually to a Nigerian musician the other day on the train, just by chance, who is a juju exponent. So uh, he plays a very different kind of music. And so I played him um, Africa Center. And I saw the look on his face. He wasn't too sure about what he was hearing because he was hearing, you know, the newly independent national anthems of the newly decolonized African states in the 60s being chopped up. Uh, And of course, it's coming from a tradition that he doesn't uh, practice himself. So it's an amazing piece and doesn't always make you feel comfortable. I do do admit that that's true, even though I'm much more familiar with it now. And it's also hard on the ears because it goes to the top, top, top range of frequencies, which are up there with tinnitus and right, right down to the deep, deep dub bass that Onirota talks about as political. So fine piece of experimentation, uh, a very poignant piece of remembering and a hugely important historical document in sonic form. And then in your final chapter, you turn to what I guess many people will think of as the maybe the primary site of sample culture in music, which is rap and hip hop. And here you draw on Henry Louis Gates's theory of signifying as a way to think about the kind of complex web of intertextual referencing in hip hop. So could you maybe give a little bit of a primer on this theory and then how you apply it to Gilscott Heron's piece, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised? Okay, well, this is the idea of, you know, um, you know, Africa slash African-American um, cultures of signifying, of paying homage, of um, uh, practices that jazz pianists uh, and jazz musicians were doing um, long before the digital and the scratching techniques brought, um, you know, through hip hop and rap brought this to the world stage. Um, and signifying is a form of respect, uh, just as uh, we learn from musical borrowing and its history, um, you know, you, you take the sound or a phrase or a lick and you in, in, interpolate it and you presume that your audience knows that you've interpolated this particular moment. So it's based on a mutual understanding of what the source was in the first place. Um, and that mutual understanding, of course, is much larger than just the one listener and the, uh, and the, and the musician. 
So um, signifying, um, Henry Gates takes it from um, literary theory, and there's some very extraordinary important theories in um, African and Black studies about the cultural relationships and conversations that go on that are specifically related to African-American um, Black politics, but also how they might link back to um, the continent of Africa, and of course Afro-Caribbean sounds. So in that sense, one had to think about um, if rap and hip-hop are the site of what we think in the West as sampling, um, we have to remember that it too didn't just come from nowhere. Um, it became a huge, a huge hit because the music industry got a hold of it and, you know, the rest is history. But the idea of borrowing and signifying and doing it in ways that are coded that the communities understand, but those who are not from those communities may not get. So there's a very complicated gender uh, sexuality trope in here, which is why I um, looked at Sarah Jones, particularly her her respectful dissing of um, Gil Scott Heron's um, uh, signature piece, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, because uh, uh, being censored on public radio because you use um, explicit terms for sexuality. Now we see, you know, uh, Cardi B and, you know, female rap and hip hop stars um, being very, very explicit. It's a lot more permissible and permitted these days. But back in the 90s when Sarah Jones turned the um, signifying back on Scott Heron's kind of masculine and masculine um, um, idioms, uh, she got promptly taken off the airwaves. So that was part of that story. But the theories of signifying is very, very important for understanding why hip hop and rap lyrics and, and the, the actual content itself is not straightforward um, explicit. You can't take a positivist approach to it. You can't just say she said something sexually explicit, therefore that's what she meant. She could be meaning something else entirely. And, and that's what Gates really, really unpacks, uh, along with um, other scholars, that uh, it's not about literal meaning. It's it's coded, like all language is coded. And that's why uh, when you talk about politics and music through only the lyrics, you miss half the story because of metaphor, irony, humour. Um, and then the tricky part here is, of course, when the music industry, who own all the copyright, then start to see um, a monetized uh, value in taking artists to court or artists take other artists to court. So a lot of stuff about sampling in the rap and hip hop eras, particularly in the 80s and 90s, it gets, um, you know, wrapped up in the whole issues around um, uh, litigation. So really had to think about it as the point of view of signifying as within African-American communities, as music making before, during and since rap and hip hop took off as a global market, but also the gender, sex, gender, sexual politics within rap and hip hop, particularly for black African-American women and, and the black political movement that we're now seeing, where they're saying, hang on a minute, uh, we're going to, uh, we don't want to have your bombastic wrapped in plastic, that sort of thing. We can do it just as well. People like Missy Elliott um, have been absolute trailblazers in that respect. So lots to learn there as well. Um, Scott Heron himself didn't like my The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. It wasn't his favorite track. But it's certainly a life-changing track if you hear it at any age. So, And also because he's been sampled so many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times and how he, in the end, 
under the new regime of um, acknowledging quite explicitly where your sample's from and getting permission, if not paying. So in this final album, we see him sampling from Kanye West. So the circle is rounded in some kind of way. I think your um, your reflections on Gil Scott Heron's kind of slightly uneasy relationship with both hip hop, uh, being seen as a godfather of hip hop, um, but also with that track, really shows quite powerfully the, the like really real ambivalence of sampling and borrowing as a force of decontextualization. Because I think the the revolution will not be televised. You know, he didn't want that to become a cipher for his entire kind of body of work, which was more complicated than that. But its mobility by virtue of you know borrowing and circulation it underpins so much of its power and then so much of its reinterpretation and, and the critiques that you cite afterwards and so i think it it sits so nicely as a kind of um indication of yeah the real really like ambivalent power and politics of internal to sampling and of sampling as a form of politics um, at the end of the book I, I thought it really kind of rounded off so much of um so much of the earlier arguments i think I oh know. yes i think so too and i think because i wanted to get out of this kind of chronological trap um where you start with a and end at z as if this is some kind of explanatory paradigm in itself um, because you know all musicians and artists are referring backwards forwards and onwards and you see the thing is um there's some very important work being done about rap and hip-hop as music as sonics we all know it's about rhythm so I really sat down and did a musicological analysis in my limited way of why it was not just the words, because it's an extraordinarily eloquent piece of rapping before it was called rapping, as we know it, but also the way he delivers the words. And not just the jazz backing, that's a very famous um, lineup that he's got in the um, version that we know with the more jazzy feel, but just the rhythm. And I really wanted to sort of figure out what it was about his delivery that was so powerful. So it's the, you know, it's, it's, it's a poem. And then Sarah Jones gets it when she says, this revolution will not be held between these thighs. The revolution will not be televised. This revolution will not be held between these thighs. So there's so much signifying going on here on the literal level, on the sonic level, on you know, poetic. It's extraordinary, but it is music making. And um, I think we need to think about rap and hip hop, again, beyond the lyrics, but also the rhythm of the lyrics, the delivery, the production values, particularly with Public Enemy. Um, and they're making extremely important kinds of music that Asian Duck Foundation, of course, um, pull from and develop in their own way. So once again, it's more than the lyrics, however important the lyrics are. And it, that feels kind of more relevant than ever as well, I think, when if you think at some of the kind of preeminent um, hip-hop artists now, someone like Kendrick Lamar, who is famed as a lyricist, but so much of the kind of interest and the distinctiveness of his performance is about the... The, yeah, the sonics of his delivery and his, the way he uses so many different registers, uh, you know, at once going through one song, he might, you know, how he inhabits different characters through a, diff a use of different voices, different rhyme schemes. And he, he raps as a musician and, and that's so apparent, I think. And so that kind of analysis is going to become more and more necessary, I think. Yeah, and also the final thing about the signifying work that people like Gates have done is Gates is still, there's a whole debate which I only just touch upon within African-American studies about jazz as the epitome of uh, uh, black cultural achievement. 
So there's a certain kind of issue here about hierarchies of values that we see also in um, thinkers about the Western classical tradition. And there's a whole critique within these debates that, in fact, um, jazz itself was pretty pretty smutty, quote-unquote, in its own time. And this kind of sanitization of jazz, which comes from um, arguably Winston Marsalis's view with Ken Burns, um, is being challenged from within um, African music studies. Uh, and this means that rap and hip-hop is not that far removed from jazz and popular African-American classical forms, as the literature would like us to suggest. Uh, but this is also wrapped up with the whole issue about a minority um, discriminated, formerly enslaved um, part of the American populace whose music actually drives Americans' cultural dominance. So there's another double-edged sword for you. Um, uh, without African music making, the American music industry wouldn't be anywhere in global terms. And rap and hip-hop have just proven it because now, according to uh, Katz, uh, just like they did in the in the 60s, uh, the American State Department sees rap and hip-hop as a new tool of American diplomacy, cultural diplomacy. Who would have thought? So next thing, we'll see Kendrick Lamar possibly on a diplomatic mission to China next. If not, he, perhaps he's gone already. Yeah, I mean, the... There's a kind of pleasing neatness, I guess, about that coming full circle in the book about kind of trans-historical trends in music and borrowing across time and space, I suppose, um, how these things kind of start up again. I mean, as, as I kind of said at the top, you know, we, we've only really been able to touch on a tiny slice of what's covered in the book because it, it, it covers huge amounts of music and forms of interpretation and forms of borrowing. So I, I really would urge anyone listening to check out the full book. Um, but yeah, I mean... I really, really enjoyed it, certainly. Um, you, you mentioned you were going to maybe build on some of the work you did for the chapter on My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. Is that what you're working on next, or is there anything else kind well, of coming Well, I'm working down? on not quite what I'm working on next. I'm now working on, I'm somewhat delayed because this book we talked about today did take longer than intended. I'm working on what I affectionately call my Punk Chicks book, which is um, coming out with transcript if um, all goes well. Um uh, hopefully next year, and that's on um, Change the Record, um, Punk Women Music Politics. So I'm looking at all these uh, memoirs written by uh, the doyens of so-called punk music, from Patti Smith through to uh, Slita Kinney and everything in between. Uh, and that's just a fun book. And, um, and my premise there is that... Um, Female musicians, women, are also grossly underrepresented in our literature and our critique. And now they're actually taking charge and they're writing their own versions of this important period in um, popular music history. So that's what I'm working on right now. <laughs> and and the, the World of Islam Festival and its um, musical um, comings and goings um, is there on my to-do list. Well, I mean, that sounds like plenty to be getting on with and I look forward to, it. Look forward to reading it when it comes along. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you.